0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu.
1: Start back with finishing up the covenant of works. Um, We want to just there a couple of a couple more issues that always arise with the covenant of works, or questions that come up that we're going to try to address those quickly, and then we'll move on to the covenant of redemption. But the, the the first issue that oftentimes comes up, and somebody raised the question last week. Uh, in this class as well. And the the, the question is over the the presence of grace in the covenant of works. Was there grace in the covenant of works? Was it in any sense a gracious covenant? And the the answer to that question really has to be extremely nuanced. Um, the, the, The first thing that we have to realize is that most of the people, or not most, a lot of the people who have raised that question in the past have raised it with a very specific agenda in mind. Uh, In in particular, Karl Barth and those who hold to his views uh, insist that all covenantal relationships between God and man are necessarily gracious relationships. And so, therefore, if there was a covenant between God and Adam in his innocence, it must have been a gracious covenant. But they speak of the the grace that they have in mind is a redemptive, salvific sort of grace. And, of course, that's tied to a, a Bardian anthropology that sees man's principal deficiency as his humanity, And so the the graciousness of the covenant of works is in overcoming that humanity, and you get into some of the particulars of Bart's thinking. But um, that that, that particular framing of the question, a lot of times if if the issue of grace within the covenant of works comes up, somebody's heading down that direction. Uh, But I think we can essentially rule that understanding out, that we're not talking about a gracious covenant of works in the, the Bardian sense. I think it, it's important to make a distinction within grace, a distinction between two different kinds of grace. On the one hand, you have redemptive grace. And on the other hand, you have what you could call condescending grace. Or sometimes people speak of creational grace. On the one hand, you have redemptive grace, and that the definition of that is Pretty evident from the name, it seems. Uh, Redemptive grace is grace that redeems. Uh, It overcomes the demerit of sin. Uh, It uh, is redemptive in that sense. Uh, It's a grace that gives what had been rejected. It overcomes demerit. On the other hand, you have condescending grace. And this condescending grace functions without reference to demerit. It's not giving something that was rejected. It's giving something that's undeserved. Uh, it's it's condescending in that sense. And if you have that distinction in mind, I think you have to say on the one hand that the covenant of works had absolutely no element of redemptive grace. Uh, there's no demerit of sin in Adam's innocence, so therefore there's no demerit to be overcome. Uh, there, there really is, is no logical room for redemptive grace. Uh, there's no redemption that's needed in Adam's innocence. And oftentimes when you have people being very insistent that there is no grace in the covenant of works, what they're talking about is this redemptive grace. But on the other hand, I think we do need to say that the covenant of works was filled with condescending grace. Uh, God created man. He breathed into him the breath of life. He made him in his own image. Uh, He gave the man creation ordinances that guided him toward happiness and fulfillment. Uh, In the focal aspect of the covenant of works, God held out the promise of eternal life. You know, you could go through a whole litany of aspects of the covenant of works, and it's clear that in the covenant of works, God was giving man what he undoubtedly did not deserve. Uh, simply because man was God's creature, he owed God obedience. Uh, the very fact of Adam's creation meant that he owed allegiance and obedience to God. Uh, God didn't have to give Adam uh, the blessedness and the joy of marriage and procreation and labor and Sabbath uh, on top of his obedience. He didn't have to hold out eternal life uh, he didn't. God didn't have to annex all of these blessings to man's obedience. Man owed obedience simply because he was created of God. And so in God's giving of all of these blessings to man, there's an undeniable element of grace, this condescending sort of grace. Um, his, uh, man's obedience was already required, so to add blessing on top of it uh, is undeniably gracious. And it seems to me important to maintain that element of grace within the covenant of works Uh, it it keeps our understanding of god our understanding of man our understanding of relationship between god and man it keeps all of those in proper perspective Uh, it helps us see that the the covenant of works is not some cold legal sort of contract Uh, it was a condescendingly gracious covenant Uh, god held out the promise of infinite life to man Uh, that's why the the Shorter Catechism, for instance, calls the covenant of works the covenant of life. Uh, the gift of life is held out to man. Uh, so when that proper distinction is made between redemptive grace and condescending grace, then we need to say that, yes, there was grace in the covenant of works. It's condescending grace. Uh, without it, there was, would have been no eternal benefit for man within the covenant. He didn't deserve eternal life. God graciously annexed it to the obedience that He already owed. So with that distinction, we can say that there was condescending grace within the covenant of works. Now, While well, at the same time being careful to say that there was not redemptive grace. Uh, the, the second issue that tends to come up and that's important as we continue through covenant theology... Uh, is the exact relationship between the what you might call the terms of the covenant of works, the stipulations, the obligations, all those things, uh, the relationship between those terms and the later moral law or the decalogue, uh, the law given at Mount Sinai. Now, the, this will come up again later when we get to the Mosaic Covenant and we'll consider it in more detail there, but with the, the covenant of works somewhat fresh in our minds, I think it's helpful to at least briefly mention it. There's the, the, this question of what is the relationship between you know, the, the terms of the covenant of works and the later moral law. And I think in order to come to terms with the relationship of the two, we need, first of all, to come to terms with the thrust of the terms of the covenant of works. What was the point of the terms of the covenant of works. Uh, We saw last hour how the the specific prohibition on eating the tree or eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how it really uncovered the heart of the covenant of works, the the matter of obedience to the Word of God. Uh, When you look at that focal aspect of the covenant, you realize that the terms of the covenant of works were really pressing upon mankind the necessity of obedience to God's revelation. That's what the the covenant of works was was pressing upon man. He was to be obedient to the revelation of God. And then when you shift your gaze a little bit and look at the creation ordinances, you see that the terms of the covenant of works in these creation ordinances were seeking to bring man into conformity with God. Uh, All of these creation ordinances were reflections within the life of man. They were reflections of the character and the activity of God. Uh, labor and Sabbath obviously were reflections of God's own work in the creation, his laboring six days and resting the seventh. Uh, marriage and the, the union between man and woman, the making of two into one flesh, uh, the plurality within unity that that held forth, that was uh, reflective of the plurality within the unity of God. Uh, procreation and the filling of the earth that came with it was a continuation of what God had done in placing man in the earth. You can see how the the creation ordinances are leading man in his finite created life to mirror the activity and the being of God. Uh, So overall, the thrust of the covenant of works was that by obeying everything that God commanded, mankind would know both likeness to and fellowship with the God who had created him. Uh, In the covenant of works, I think it's safe to say, uh, in the covenant of works, God was revealing His character to man. And if man would render obedience to what God was requiring, then man would be conformed to the image of His Creator. God was revealing Himself through the terms of the covenant of works. And so in that regard, the terms of the covenant of works and the later stipulations of the moral law are, in fact, identical. Uh, both of them are revelations of the character of God that He's given to His people in order that, by obedience to them, God's people might come to reflect God's character. So on that sort of principial level, there is an identity between uh, the regulations of the covenant of works and the later moral law. Uh, Both of them are revelations of God's character within human society that are intended to lead God's people to reflect God's character. Now, of course, when we get to uh, the Mosaic Law, we'll talk more about how that applies to the uh, the moral law. But for the time being, I think we just need to note, while the particulars of the covenant of works are fresh in our minds, we need to note that uh, underlying the specific ordinances and the prohibitions of the covenant of works, there's both a disclosure of the character of God and a call for man to render obedience to the revelation of God, both of which work together, uh, intending to draw man into a uh, a display of God's character. Any questions about that? All right. The, the next thing, the third issue uh, that we need to address is one that we we're starting to get into at the end last hour and that is the the current validity, if you want to put it that way, of the covenant of works. Uh, is the covenant of works still binding on man, or did it essentially fall by the wayside when Adam sinned? Now certainly, all of us would say that the curse of the covenant of works is still binding upon all men. All men sinned in Adam, and therefore all men are subject to the curse of death. Uh, that's clear in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's clear that the curse of the covenant of works is still binding on all men. But what about the terms of the covenant of works? This demand for obedience uh, to the law of God. Is that still binding on all man, all men? Are we not only consigned to die, but are we also required to render obedience? Now, in, in trying to answer that question, we need to remember... What we the kind of the division that we made as we looked at the covenant of works, you have relational aspects, and you have what you could call contractual aspects. And in relation to the relation to the relational aspects, uh, we saw how the the binding relationship between God and man really is crystallized in the imago dei, in the, the image of God in man. Uh, as God's image bearer, man stands in the closest of relationship with Him. And the Scriptures are incredibly clear that even though this image of God has been effaced by sin, it has not been destroyed. It hasn't been removed. Uh, Some theologians say that the Imago Dei was lost at the fall, but I think the Scriptures are clear that it was not. Uh, Just a, a couple of places from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, uh, we start to read some of the genealogy <clears throat> of Adam passing through Seth. And there in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it begins by reminding us that Adam was made in God's image. And then it tells us that Adam begot Seth in his image. Uh, the insinuation there, it seems to me, is that the Imago day given to Adam is then passed down to Seth. It's transmitted to his posterity even after the fall. Adam resembled God, and Seth resembled Adam. Therefore, Seth still bears this image of God. You could interpret that differently, but I think that's a reasonable interpretation of it. And I think it's even more clearly, the the continuation of the image of God is even more clearly shown in Genesis chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. At that point, it's after the flood, and God is describing to Noah essentially how matters will proceed after the flood, and God specifically, in those two verses, He specifically prohibits murder, saying that anyone who murders must forfeit his own life. And the reason that God gives for mandating this capital punishment is because man bears the image of God, and therefore anyone who sins against that image by killing man must forfeit his own life as well. So there, even after the judgment of the flood, a man is still bearing God's image, and that image bearing has real implications. It requires capital punishment. Uh, You get the same sorts of uh, emphases in the New Testament in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 through 7, and James 3, verse 9. There are a number of indications in the New Testament as well that the Imago day continues. It endures even after the fall. It's been certainly affected, but it hasn't been erased. So, the relationship aspect of the covenant of works is still present. We're still related to God as His image bearers. But what about the contractual elements? What about the the terms of the covenant of works? Now, obviously, the focal aspect of the covenant of works, the prohibition of eating of the fruit of the tree, uh, doesn't exist anymore. There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil sitting in the middle of town, uh, the the underlying principle of unquestioned obedience to the Word of God remains, that certainly endures, uh, but the specific prohibition of Genesis two sixteen and 17 uh, is at least circumstantially no longer relevant. But we do find the abiding significance of the creation ordinances, uh, those general aspects of the covenant of works. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, Verses 16 and 17, as you probably know, that's immediately after the fall. And in those verses, uh, essentially God is telling Adam and Eve how the curse is going to play out in their lives. And God reiterates each of the creation ordinances that we've considered in class. In verse 16, in his words to Eve, God reiterates the necessity of procreation. She's going to bear children. Uh, there will be pain in childbearing. Uh, also in verse 16, God reiterates the uh, necessity of marriage uh, with it speaking of how her desire will be for her husband. Uh, in verse 17, God reiterates when he's speaking to Adam, reiterates the presence of the labor ordinance. A man will, by the sweat of his brow, he'll till the ground. Uh, the Sabbath is not explicitly referred; uh, is not is not explicitly mentioned. But again, just like we saw before, it's implied alongside labor. And as you move forward in the Old Testament, you find that even before the Sabbath is explicitly mandated at Mount Sinai, uh, the Israelites still are observing the Sabbath and are bound to do so. Uh, In Exodus chapter 16, for instance, you know, the Israelites are on their way from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and a a large section of Exodus 16 is taken up with regulations for how the manna is to be gathered on the Sabbath, or rather not gathered on the Sabbath, is to be gathered in double portion on the sixth day so that it's not gathered on the seventh day so they can keep the Sabbath. Even before uh, the institution of the Sabbath at Mount Sinai, the Sabbath is still present with God's people. Uh, it predates sinai it goes all the way back to this creation ordinance so you see that all of the creation ordinance ordinances remain even after the fall uh, the fall didn't remove the creation ordinances it certainly complicated the relationship between uh, obedience and reward but it didn't remove the ordinances uh, it's interesting even when you move into the new testament again you find all of the creation ordinances being reiterated uh, when When Jesus defines what marriage is in mark ten verses five through nine he cites genesis one twenty seven and genesis two twenty four and the creation ordinance of marriage uh, in second Thessalonians three ten through twelve Paul mandates labor for everyone within the church uh, in hebrews four one through ten we read of how our earthly Sabbaths anticipate a greater Sabbath to come. Uh, Colossians two eleven through 12 and its teaching on baptism, which we'll consider later on, uh, it indicates a continuation of the command to procreate. Now, even in the New Testament, you see all these creation ordinances are having abiding validity. So, I think it's a thoroughly biblical statement to say that today, mankind stands not only under the curse of the covenant of works, but also under its terms. We're still bound by the creation ordinances. We're still bound by the requirement for obedience. Uh, the, the, the covenant of works, certainly obedience to the covenant of works can't save any of us today. We can't be obedient, but that doesn't mean its obligations have been erased. Uh, the, the covenant of works in that sense is an abiding covenant. And that leads us right into the the, the fourth point that we need to make and note about the covenant of works and this is the one that bears uh, probably on the the most important aspect of the covenant of works uh, for our theology Uh, in in the covenant of works we see that mankind even in his innocence even without the stain of sin mankind still needs obedience Uh, he still needs righteousness in order to enjoy eternal, unbroken fellowship with God. Now, even sinlessness is not enough for blessedness. Man needs positive righteousness. He needs obedience. Now, on the one hand, certainly that condemns all of our efforts at self-righteousness. You know, prior to the fall, Adam was sinless. He was spotless and yet still he needed obedience uh, even then there was this righteousness that he needed that as we see was beyond his capability and you know, so if adam was unable to win his own salvation by his righteousness then how foolish it is that we think we're capable of it but even more so i, th- I think it it's important to remember today that in order Uh, to be God's people, in order to have eternal life in the presence of God, we don't only need to have our sins washed away, but we also need to be given righteousness. We don't only need innocence, we also need righteousness. Uh, As we see very clearly in Genesis 3, uh, we're under the curse of the covenant of works, and yet the obligations of that covenant, those creation ordinances, they're still binding Upon us. We still are required to render obedience. So you could say that since the fall, mankind has labored under a double obligation. On the one hand, he has an obligation to pay the penalty for the transgression of the covenant of works, in other words, he has to die. And also, he's under the obligation to render obedience to the terms of the covenant of works, he's under the obligation to render obedience. Now, obviously, that impinges tremendously on our understanding of redemption, our understanding of justification. If we're to be found eternally and acceptable in God's sight, we need more than just forgiveness. Uh, In a sense, there's some flaws in this, but you can kind of say that forgiveness just gets you back to the Garden of Eden. In addition to that forgiveness, you also need Righteousness just like Adam in the garden needed righteousness and needed obedience to the covenant of works. Now, of course, we find that obedience not in our works, but in Christ. And we'll get to this when we get to the covenant of works, or excuse me, the covenant of grace. But part of what Christ does in the covenant of grace is that he fulfills the covenant of works for his people. He wins the righteousness that they need. Now, that's what we refer to as the active obedience of Christ, his active fulfillment of the law's demands on behalf of his people. That that that, that kind of gets at how the uh, the covenant works and the moral law connect. Um, the 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 driving principle of the covenant of works was perfect personal obedience to God's revealed will, and you know for for Adam, obviously, that involved things like marriage and procreation that. Christ did not do uh, but but he but he did render the perfect personal obedience that was required um, and like I said we'll, we'll get to that when we in, get into the covenant of grace more about how exactly how in the covenant of grace Christ you say, interacts with or fulfills the covenant of works um, but he the, the righteousness that was Needed by man in the covenant of works and that is still needed of man is the, uh, the is the righteousness that Christ comes and wins when he comes under the law and lives a life of obedience to the law The, 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 the creation ordinances are concrete instances of, of God uh, placing demands on, on His people, yet things that must be fulfilled, uh, obedience, ways in which obedience must be rendered to attain righteousness. The fact that those continue shows us that that obedience is still needed. Uh, it's not as if God required righteousness, but then when Adam failed, God no longer cares about righteousness. He's happy just with forgiveness. Uh, the The demand for obedience and righteousness continues. Uh, it is manifested in different ways. Um, you know, Adam didn't, at least from what we know, you know, Adam didn't have the Ten Commandments, so to speak, and even then they wouldn't have had as much meaning in innocence. Um, so some of the, Particulars of it have changed, but it's it's that underlying demand for uh, is for for obedience to God's command and uh, conformity to His image by obeying His word. I don't know if that's particularly clear at all. Yeah, the. I don't I don't mean to give the insinuation that the covenant of works either then or now is summed up just in the creation ordinance they're just um kind of outcroppings of the underlying principle that god has given requirements to man he's put parameters around the relationship uh, and mankind has to essentially do what god tells him to do I see what you mean. Yeah, I think that there, there there is something to that. Uh, that there's the. I think in in God's in God's giving of law, whether in uh, in the garden or at Sinai, we tend to think of the law as God laying out certain hoops we have to jump through and things we have to check off. Biblically, it seems that when the understanding of the giving of law is that God is revealing His character in man's society. Um, he's saying this: this is how a this is how the righteousness of God plays out in your society. Essentially, uh, for instance, you know God is a God of truth; He's unstintingly true. Therefore, what that means for us is that we don't bear false witness. The ninth commandment. And God is God of life, so we don't kill or don't murder the Sixth Commandment. It's, um, the giving of law is meant to reflect God's character in the midst of human society, how it would be lived out in society. And so that certainly does change from one society to another in some of the peripheral sorts of ways, you know, things that might have been issues for ancient Israelites that aren't for us. Not because the nature of God has changed, but because... The circumstances of our existence has changed. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I said the whole the whole issue of the law is incredibly sticky, and we'll, we'll get into it in more detail, particularly when we get to Sinai. Um, but I think basically that was a. Uh, but the the point at this point is that we do, in our current in our current state, we have resting on us not only a demand for forgiveness but also for righteousness. So in our understanding of justification, we have to allow not only for uh, the forgiveness of our sins but also for the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We need His righteousness given to us, which uh, is something that's neglected uh, in many. Uh, theologies today that's important to keep in the forefront of our mind Uh, there are a couple other areas in the interest of time maybe we'll skip over skip over those or we'll end up having a whole semester on the covenant of works as much as y'all might enjoy that maybe we won't do that to you Um, well I would uh, direct you if you haven't done the the all the reading in robertson yet he does he has some some good things to say on how uh the covenant of works shows us god's concern for all of creation i uh, would suggest you take note of that in particular some some challenging material in there but if nobody has any other particular questions about the covenant of works we'll just move along like i don't want to overburden y'all with covenant of works stuff but so please do if there are any questions. I don't want to wanna skip over something you all have a question about. All right. Well we will move on then to the covenant of redemption. If you all remember the first, I guess it was the first day of class when we had a really quick overview of all of the various covenantal entities, I think I called them. Uh, we said that you know if you were tracing the covenants from the foundation of time all the way to the consummation of the age, the first one, the first covenantal entity would be this covenant of redemption now we've obviously considered the covenant of works first because as you move through the scriptures it's the covenant of works that you find first there in Genesis 1 and 2 Uh, but next we'll consider the covenant of redemption now it's sometimes called the covenant of redemption sometimes it's called the council of peace and I'll write it, because obviously there's two ways to spell council, and there's that kind of council. Council of peace. And sometimes it's called the pactum salutis, which is essentially the Latin way to say council of peace, kind of. So... Um, or, well, you know, either covenant of redemption, council of peace, pactum salutis, all those phrases are used somewhat interchangeably. And they all refer to the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant in which the redemption of God's people was secured. Essentially, b- before the creation of time, the three persons of the Trinity entered into a covenant whereby the redemption of God's elect was secured and like I say um, it's sometimes called the covenant of redemption the, the idea that the language of council of peace is taken from Zechariah 6.13 where a, a council of peace is referred to that's where that terminology comes from and sometimes that, sometimes the terminology is used interchangeably, but oftentimes uh, there's a little bit of nuance in the specific terminology that people use. Uh, I think I alluded to this the first day of class, but there's a, a disagreement about whether the covenant of redemption should be considered as a separate covenant, distinct from the covenant of grace, or, whether it should be seen as a part of the covenant of grace, with the covenant of grace being the outworking in history of the covenant of redemption. And normally, those who favor seeing the covenant of redemption as its own distinct entity will call it the covenant of redemption, its, its own covenant. Whereas, those who favor seeing the covenant of redemption as part of the covenant of grace most often will call it the council of peace Uh, That tends to be the way that the terminology and the use of it breaks down. But for the most part, uh, the difference is really a a pedagogical, methodological sort of disagreement. There's not really much difference of substance when it comes to theology. Uh, Basically, both groups say that the same thing happened, the same pact occurred amongst the persons of the Trinity. They just disagree over how to organize it along with the covenant of grace. I know that there, there, are, there can be at least some implications as you start to work out your covenant of grace, uh, but for the most part, um, they're, they're pretty similar. Now, I, I for one, and we'll, we'll get to this, but I, I, for one, tend to think that it's best to understand the covenant of redemption as a part of the covenant of grace. Uh, essentially, the the pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian pact that then is worked out in the covenant of grace and you know, the covenant with Noah and Abraham and down through through the the process of the the covenants. So I most often will refer to it as the Council of Peace, uh, but sometimes as the Covenant of Redemption as well. Um, but you know whether you pull it out and make it its own distinct covenant, or whether you include it in the covenant of grace, either way, uh, the contents of the pact are generally seen as the same thing. There's this eternal covenant, and in it, the Father, for His part, the Father chooses specific individuals out of the mass of humanity, and He agrees to redeem them. The Son agrees to purchase those elect individuals with his active and passive obedience. And in return for that purchasing, the Son receives both exaltation and the elect people who the Father has agreed to to give to Him and He's agreed to redeem. And then the Holy Spirit covenants to apply the redemption that the Son has purchased to the elect and to preserve them in that redemption until the consummation of the age. That's, generally speaking, the the parts of the covenant that you can find in the Scripture. Uh, Michael Horton, in in his book that we're reading, he puts it pretty succinctly this way. He says, "...the Father elects a people in the Son as their mediator to be brought to saving faith through the Spirit." That's a pretty compact way of stating it. Essentially, before the ages began, the elect were chosen, and their redemption was secured. That's the the contents of the covenant, uh, the covenant of peace, or the excuse the covenant of redemption, or the council of peace. Now, you're kind of maybe picking up on this theme, but there's not always unanimity on some of these issues. There are some theologians who would take issue with the entire suggestion that we can find a pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian covenant. Uh, If you've gotten to those points in the reading, you see that both Robertson and Murray uh, essentially say that you can't find a pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian covenant. They both would, and they both do, hold to the eternal decree of God, uh, the decree of election and reprobation, uh, but... They say that it's pushing matters too far to call it a covenant. Uh, they, it can't really be termed a covenant. But it seems to me that we need to apply the same rubric here that we applied to the covenant of works. If the scriptures speak of these pretemporal, pre-temporal inter Trinitarian relations as a covenant, then we need to term it a covenant. If that's the way that it's presented in the scriptures, then that's what it is, and that's how we should deal with it. And when you come to the Scriptures, you do find that the pre-temporal, trinitarian relations that give rise to the redemption of God's people, they are presented as a covenant. That's the way the Scripture presents these uh, eternal, hidden counsels of God. And to get to that position... It's important to notice four different strands of biblical teaching. All of these strands come together to give us our doctrine of the covenant of redemption. Now, the first strand of biblical teaching is that the relationship between the Son and the Father is presented as one in which the Son renders obedience and he receives a reward for that obedience. The Scriptures. Consistently give us that presentation. Yeah, the, the relationship between the Son and the Father is presented as one in which the Son renders obedience and receives a reward for that obedience. We find that theme throughout the Scriptures. The second strand of biblical... Te- did you get it that time? Yeah. The The second strand of biblical teaching is that this obedience for reward sort of relationship that it is presented as a covenant. It's not just a, an ad hoc sort of obedience for reward relationship. It's presented as a covenant. The third strand of biblical teaching is that this covenantal relationship is seen as eternal. It dates from before the foundation of the earth. And fourthly, the fourth strand is that this eternal covenant is held in organic relation to the historical outworking of the relationship or the historical outworking of the covenant. Now, the eternal covenant is held in organic relation to the historical outworking of the covenant. Those are the four strands of biblical teaching that when you bring them together, uh, give us our understanding of the council of peace. So we're going to, we won't get through all four of them today, but we're going to do what we can to get through uh, those different strands. The first one uh, is that the relationship between the Son and the Father is presented as one in which the Son renders obedience and he receives a reward for that obedience, Now, on one level, it's pretty obvious that in His earthly ministry, the Son rendered obedience to the Father. Uh, The Gospel of John, in particular, is filled with instances of Christ saying that His Father has given Him commands. Uh, He's given Him commandments that He is to do. In John 14, 31, for instance, uh, Christ says, "...but that the world may know that I love the Father..." And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. There Christ explicitly says that the Father has given him commandment. And there, uh, commandment is a a verbal form of intello. I guess that'd be a good phonetic way. Uh, a verb meaning uh, to give orders or to give uh, commandment. Uh, obviously, the, the verbal form of uh, the noun commandment. Christ is you know, at a even at a, a terminological level is saying that God has given him the Father has given him commandments. Uh, you find the same thing just you know, a couple other places in John, John ten eighteen, John twelve forty nine, John fifteen ten. With with regularity, Christ speaks of the Father giving him commandments. Uh, in Hebrews five eight, uh, the Scriptures speak of Christ rendering obedience. You know, these aren't unique passages. I don't want to give you a whole long list of verses. Now, it's a recurring theme in the New Testament that the Father has given commands to Christ, and Christ has obeyed them. That's a, a common theme. But you'll find as you, as, you, as you look through the New Testament that when Christ is obeying these commands of the Father, He is obeying them for a purpose. And we're going to look at two passages in a little bit more detail to see that. First, we'll look in the Old Testament to Isaiah 53, a familiar chapter of the Scriptures. Isaiah 53, and specifically in verses 10 through 12, here at the close of the chapter, and I'll, just, I'll read those verses for us. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, him referring to the servant. He has put him to grief. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, there in verse 10, the New King James Version, out of which I'm reading, has it, he renders it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, Perhaps a more clear translation is what you find in the ESV where it translates it as, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. That's a probably a more clear rendering of that verb. Uh, the suffering of the Son, what we know from the New Testament to be the atoning work of the Son, this atoning work was the will of the Father. It was the command of the Father. This is what the Father intended to happen. And then when you get down to verse 12 you see that the son will receive a reward it refers to a portion with the great and the son dividing the spoil with the strong and the son is receiving a reward and why is he receiving the reward well verse 12 says because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered among the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors and that's the atoning work that verse 10 had explicitly said was the will of the Father. And so there, Isaiah is making the strongest of links between the performance of the will of the Father and the reception of a reward. Uh, The word uh, that's rendered because uh, in the Hebrew is tahat aser. It's a phrase that has the, the strongest of causal force. Uh, the The performance of the will of God is the cause of the reception of the reward uh, because the servant has done the will of the Father, he receives a reward for his obedience that's the what the the prophet is teaching us. I think it's even more clear if you flip to the New Testament in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that well-known passage there as well. Given the the time, I won't read the whole passage right now, but in in verses 5 through 8, you read of the obedience of Christ all the way from his incarnation to the death on the cross uh, Paul is writing about the obedience of Christ, both the active obedience and the passive obedience. Christ is uh, humbling himself. Uh, he's becoming obedient even to the death of the cross. This is There's this obedience that Christ is rendering. And then in verse 9, uh, verse 9 begins with this important word, therefore, or dio in the Greek, uh, because of or... As a result of this obedience that Christ has rendered, he is highly exalted. And then verse you know, 9 through 11 go on to describe that exaltation. Uh, Therefore, because of the obedience that Christ has rendered, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And once more you see Christ that Christ is rendering obedience and in return for having rendered that obedience... He is receiving a great reward from the Father. Now, it's also important to note that this reward that Christ receives for His obedience is secured by the Spirit. Uh, In the book of Acts, in Acts 2, 33, uh, Peter places the exaltation of the Son directly alongside Him receiving the promise of the Spirit from the Father. Uh, The... the the outpouring of the Spirit is sealing this exaltation of Christ. Uh, In John 14, 16, and 17, and again in verse 26 of John 14, uh, Jesus himself speaks of the Spirit coming in his name and sealing the effects of what the Son has accomplished. Uh, The same points made in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, other places... Part and parcel of what the Son has won is the application of that to the elect and the preserving of the elect by the Spirit. Um, The Spirit applies and preserves this reward that the Son has won by His obedience. Now, there are a number of other passages that you could consider, but I think it's pretty clear just from this probably too quick look at these couple of passages Uh, that there is this relationship between the Father and the Son whereby the Son renders obedience to the will of the Father and in return for His obedience, the Father gives a reward to the Son that is applied by the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is a, a clear teaching both of the Old Testament in its anticipation of the Messiah and also in the apostolic reflection on what the Messiah had done. And that might seem like a... An obvious point but it is often contended it's you know it says people will say it's rather mercenary to think that the son within the trinity that within the trinity the son has to do something to get a reward from the father uh, but when you look at the scriptures uh, it clearly holds out a relationship in which the son renders obedience and the father blesses that obedience with reward uh, that's a, a, a teaching throughout the scriptures um well, um well i th- well, i think on on the one hand, it's somewhat hard to say <laughs> but but also uh Joseph and I were talking about this a little bit before chapel uh but we tend to think of sin having entered the world when whether Eve or Adam, depending on which way you look at it, when their teeth broke the flesh of the fruit. Uh, but, in fact, that was just the the, just the the visible outworking of the rebellion of their hearts. Uh, Eve already had set her heart on the tree. She thought it was pleasing to the eye and good to eat. Uh, I think it's legitimate to say that sin already was occurring in the rebellion. Um, if you're... Well, I think, on the one hand, um, and uh, I, I think, probably, as I recall, Dr. Curd makes this point in his discussion of uh, Genesis 1 through 3, that while you can't see it as clearly, essentially, Adam was already engaged in a sinful rebellion because he obviously hadn't taught Eve what God had taught him. Uh, he, you know, When you compare... Eve's you know when the serpent asks Eve about the tree her recounting of what God had told Adam is starkly different in a number of different ways that Dr. Kurd brings out pretty clearly which reflects on the fact that Adam already had been negligent in his duties of telling Eve what she had not been there to hear Adam had received the commandment about the tree before Eve's creation um, so that there, there it seems to be that Eve, even in Eve's descent into rebellion, there's evidence of a prior negligence, sinful negligence by Adam um, or at least culpable negligence. So I, th- I think that it, at that point Adam is not a sinless representative in the sense that Christ is. And they also while you know, while the, uh, we need to be careful when we get to the New Testament and it holds up a parallel between Christ and Adam in uh, particularly like in Romans 5. Paul's point is that there is congruity, there's parallelism, there's similarity. They're both covenant heads, but we also need to remember the the radical difference between a created man, even in his innocence, a created covenant head, and the eternal Son of God of infinite worth and sinlessness in His role as a covenant head. Because I think that it you, there are things that Christ can do as a covenant head that Adam never could. Um, Christ, before coming in the flesh, before undertaking His obligations in the covenant of redemption or fulfilling the covenant works on our behalf, before any of that, He had His own inherent righteousness that Adam never had. He had to earn His righteousness. Christ has His own, and He earns it through the covenants. Um, He's able to give righteousness to others in a way that Adam is not. So I think that while the parallel between the headship of Adam and the headship of Christ can be helpful in certain ways. It can also be pushed too far. Uh, And I think that it would be pushing it too far to think that Adam somehow could have rendered an obedience on behalf of Eve. Uh, the, The account that we have in the Scriptures I don't think gives any room to think that he could have. In addition to the fact that it seems to me that Eve's predicament is pretty it's pretty damning of Adam as well you know in addition to the fact that the way the scriptures present it Eve takes the fruit and now like she runs across the garden to show Adam it says she eats it and she turns and gives it to him he, he's standing there witnessing her disobedience and it's, I, I don't think that um, like I said Adam is not at that point an impeccable covenant head the way that the way that Christ is. So I think there are a number of ways in which the parallel is not absolute. So I don't... I think it's justifiable to say that Adam could not have done for Eve, even in his innocence, what Christ did for Eve in his perfection. I don't know if that may have just talked around your question. but. No. Yeah, well, if, if if there's anything, feel free to ask me more. I can, yeah, well, I I can, I can talk without answering longer. I heard I was one of that
2: answer it.
1: longer. they were already before the the Well, um, Yeah, another definite difference: Would Christ, Christ in His righteousness, is unable to sin. Um, obviously, Adam wasn't. I mean, there there scores of differences. whereby their you know, their headship. I mean, the, the 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 main you know the main places where we get the parallel between Christ and Adams in Romans five and First Corinthians fifteen, and the main point that's being made in both of those is that just as Adam's disobedience passed upon, the consequences of it passed upon all of his posterity because he was the head, so Christ's, the merits of Christ's obedience passes on all those in him because he's their head. Um, the, the parallel is mainly of their, the effect of their relative disobedience or obedience upon those under them, more so than saying that you know, these, these two figures are exactly synonymous in every way in their different covenantal headships, because the fact of the matter is, they're not. You know, Adam's created. Christ is not, and they're, you know they're in the, the implications of that ripple out throughout the um, throughout the covenant. You also, you know, Adam, you know, God, God didn't make Adam and say, "Here's the agreement. What do you think? You want to do it or not?" Um, it was, impo- it was sovereignly imposed on him, whereas Christ willingly enters into you know I, you, I guess you, you could enumerate lots of ways in which they're, they're different, but um, we need to be careful about play, pressing the parallel too far. Now I've rambled past the hour so y'all can't ask any more questions. <laughs> but if you do have more questions, please do see me after class. And also, just so to, as a reminder, next week is the spring lecture series, I believe it's called. So the class will not meet next week. Our next meeting will be in two weeks' time. I think that's March 1st. So next week you have the lectures, and then we'll meet back again in two weeks' time. And if you have any questions, please do send me or email me during the week or call me or whatever you need to
0: do. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.